Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. On Friday, 12th of February, I spoke to Jay Jacobs, the Head of Research and Strategy at GlobalX. GlobalX is an innovative provider of thematic ETFs, an industry segment that shot to prominence last year, netting record returns. Jay, frequently cited on platforms like CNBC, Bloomberg, and The Wall Street Journal, leads GlobalX's research efforts, identifying potential growth opportunities and instigating the development of new industry-first products. Jay talked through the firm's thematic growth ETFs, a range of funds that gives investors exposure to anything from genomics to lithium to artificial intelligence. Jay outlines the benefits of a thematic investment approach and finishes by highlighting his themes to watch. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Jay. It's great to have you with us. How's your week been so far? Uh, it's been uh, another great week. We're off to a very strong start to the year and uh, great to see the markets continuing to stay uh, you know, very, uh, very solid into 2021. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll get into sort of your background and what you do on a day-to-day basis at GlobalX shortly. Uh, but if I can kick off with uh, an introductory question. Um, I read that by Q4 2020, on a year-over-year basis, thematic ETF assets under management had increased by 274%. So that was from $27.8 billion at the end of Q4 2019. So it's extremely rapid growth that we're seeing in this segment. Um, and it makes it, I think, one of the fastest growing segments in the ETF business uh, worldwide. So in your opinion, why are themes attracting so much interest at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thematic investing basically quadrupled uh, in the ETF world last year. And I guess two important points. First is thematic investing isn't new. Uh, It didn't just come on the scene in 2020. Frankly, it's been going on for decades, just largely in the institutional space, where very sophisticated investors had access to the research and the global trading capabilities to do thematic investing. The big change that's happened in the last few years is the growth of thematic ETFs that allow individual investors to financial advisors to institutions all to use these uh, financial instruments to gain exposure to certain themes in the ETF structure. So a lot of it has just been building you know, the awareness of thematic investing and building the product set of thematic ETFs. But in 2020, we also had, of course, one of the most memorable events of our lifetime, which was the COVID-19 pandemic. Its impact on thematic investing was that it really highlighted how these themes are disrupting certain parts of the global economy. As we were stuck at home, we couldn't go to brick and mortar stores. We had to order online through e-commerce platforms. Uh, instead of going to live sporting events or concerts, we had to find other ways to entertain ourselves through video games and esports or streaming services online. Or instead of going into the offices, we had to rely on cloud computing services to get that data and software to be able to do our jobs from home. So it showed that uh, just broad investing or broad sector investing wasn't really giving people targeted exposure to areas of the market that really stood to benefit from this move to a more digital first uh, economy. But themes were doing that. A lot of thematic ETFs provide very targeted exposure to those concepts, and therefore they were really well positioned in this unique environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess that broadly covers why uh, there's so much sort of take up in the institutional space. And do do you think then COVID has been the instigator for this theme to pick up real momentum in the retail space as well? It has been. I think, you know, retail investors, um, you know, are a little bit more focused on kind of what's happening uh, in front of them in their day to day. I think, uh, you know, retail investors might, you know, kind of connect the dots of I'm working from home. I keep using this, you know, platform called Slack or Salesforce or uh, or you or Zoom. And, you know, how do I invest in this? And they realize that these are all components of certain cloud computing indexes and see an ETF that can provide exposure to that. So I think it just became very much in the forefront of how people were, you know, were conducting their daily lives and retail investors, you know, made that connection between uh, these companies and thematic investing. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, that, that's really interesting. And actually, there's a few points there that I want to cover in greater detail uh, further on in the interview. But first, just to give people a, a kind of broader understanding of what you do on a day-to-day basis at Global X, I read your job title, I think, is Head of Research and Strategy at Global X. So uh, if a typical day, in inverted commas, exists, what, what might that look like for you? Yeah, so I, I broadly think about research in the financial services industry as three major components. Uh, the first is consuming information, reading as much as you can, experiencing as much as you can, talking to as many people in different industries to learn about what you're trying to research, just bringing in all that information. The second component is analyzing or synthesizing that information. So structuring your thoughts around what you've learned and having a rigid process about analyzing all of that information and turning it into actionable insights. And then the third stage is communication, talking about that with investors, talking about that internally, whether it informs you know product development or other aspects of the business. So a typical day is really a bit of all three of those things. Um, you know the the research team at Global X were constantly uh, you know trying to find information about our themes, whether that's you know reading you know very broad publications or more specialized industry reports, talking with uh, with you know IR people at certain companies, going to conferences, um, and then we synthesize a lot of that information into blog posts and videos and webinars and communicate that to uh, to the broader public. So. Every day is extremely different when you have 80 different ETFs ranging from fintech to cloud computing to Norway to preferred stocks, but um, uh, but largely we're following that three-step pattern on the research team. Yeah, absolutely. And to dig into your research process then, do you think there's anything that differentiates your methods, GlobalX's methods, uh, from those of your competitors? Well, first of all, we've really invested heavily in the research arm at Global X. Um, you know, some people might say, you know, ETFs are passive; they're just tracking an index. What do you need research for? We took the opposite approach, and really, uh, you know, five or six years ago, realized that we wanted to be a research-first company and ha- and really heavily invest in the research process because we're not just tracking the S and P five hundred or the Barclays AG. Um, we're often creating very customized indexes with index providers targeting very specific parts of the market. And to be able to do that effectively, we really need a deep understanding of these different strategies and and areas of the market. So we've grown the research team. Uh, My team has 11 people. We also have uh, research in Europe. We have a CIO team in the US. So altogether, we're about 15 people. Um, And we're uh, we're constantly involved in everything from uh, working with our product development team to working with clients to make sure they understand what's happening under the hood of our funds uh, at the individual company level, at the industry level, and at the at the uh, kind of more macro level as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you've kind of alluded to it there that your research and the ongoing stuff that you're doing on that side of things will obviously feed into product development. Um, can you talk to us uh, just for people that are obviously external to this process with little understanding of how new products are brought to market? Can you talk us through the process of identifying and developing a new, a new ETF. Yeah, absolutely. So within the context of thematic investing, we follow uh, a very rigid process for identifying these themes that we want to bring out in an ETF. So the research team working very closely with, uh, with our product development team and my colleague, Alex Ashby, we've created what we effectively call the thematic universe. Um, Maybe it sounds a little bit, uh, a little bit more, more grand than necessary, but we look at everything from uh, themes that different financial firms are talking about, that consulting firms are talking about. We look at futurists. We look at all these different organizations that are trying to identify these forward-looking trends. And we basically keep a, uh, a, da- a database of all of these different themes. Um, currently, there's about 70 of them in that database. And we analyze them from a lot of different uh, angles. Um, you know, We look at the conviction behind the theme. Do we believe that this is really going to disrupt the global economy? So we look at things like what's the total addressable market, how much of that addressable market has already been penetrated, how quickly has that happened, if it's a technology-driven theme, what's the state of that technology, is there path to profitability, are there other codependencies of other technologies that need to evolve for this technology to be successful? So we look at it from all these different angles and try to make the case for whether we think this theme is really powerful and likely to occur um, or is it uh, a little bit more kind of aspirational and, and not really ready for the main stage? So we look at conviction. Um, and then because we're an ETF provider and we're investing in publicly traded equities, 
Uh, we look at investability. Are there at least 20 publicly traded companies that are providing pure play exposure to this theme? A lot of themes that are really interesting and fun to talk about just don't meet that investability criteria in our, in our analysis. Um, but the ones that do uh, then make it to the third stage, which is time horizon, where we're looking at uh, how quickly or, or how long of a runway uh, will this theme likely express itself? Um, our preference is that this is a longer term theme. We, do, we don't want themes that are just going to play out in a couple of months because uh, we think that puts a lot of pressure on timing um, for our, you know, to create an ETF and for our investors to get in and get out at the right time. Our preference is to look at themes that are going to play out over multiple decades or maybe even be evergreen in nature. So once we look at all three of those items, conviction, investability, and time horizon, then we ultimately have a final assessment of whether we think this theme makes sense to bring out in an ETF. And all of that is really just the, the preamble to all the work that goes into designing the index and all the operational aspect that goes into creating the ETF that our product team does such a wonderful job with. So um, it's, a, it's a long process. It's a research-driven process. But it's very important to us because ultimately what we bring out as a thematic ETF, we think has really, uh, really has kind of passed a, a very high bar um, to, uh, to be, you know, made available to investors. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I suppose as part of that research process and to determine whether a product is, is viable for the long term, you need to assess the competitor landscape. I was just interested to get your thoughts on where you think GlobalX actually sit within that competitor landscape, uh, that landscape of ETF providers, maybe even within the thematic space? What, where, where do you think your differentiation is? Well, we've always, uh, we, we had this tagline, Beyond Ordinary ETFs, and that's really reflective of kind of how we started. Um, so uh, the origin story of Global X was mm. uh, our founders back in 2008 and 2009 realized that people wanted exposures that other ETF issuers were not providing. Um, you know, more specifically, one of our founders had clients who were from Colombia, the country, mm -hmm. and were looking to invest back in that country. And there was really no great way of doing it. Uh, there was, you know, not a lot of ADRs listed in the United States. There were some structured notes that, you know, were just kind of these funky instruments, expensive, illiquid, bad tax consequences. So he actually went to some of the major ETF providers and said, you know, I have some clients who would love to invest in a Columbia ETF if you'll make one. And they said, no way. We're, you know, we're focused on the UK. We're focused on Japan. We're focused on, you know, these big, broad markets. Uh, you know, we're not really interested in, in these niches. They realized, uh, you know, our founders realized that there was really an opportunity to bring out these unique exposures in an ETF, that there was a market for, um, you know, these more targeted exposures and that, you know, people were looking for a more more comprehensive access to you know global equities, so that's how we started, and I think that's really kind of um, been a common thread throughout all of the ETFs we've launched over the years, beyond just our inter what we call our international access suite, but in thematic and in income, we've always been looking for different ways of providing exposure to our clients, whether it's accessing very high growth strategies through thematic, accessing very high income strategies through our alternative income suite or accessing uh, more nuanced, unique exposures through international access. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And that certainly comes through in the kind of the, the range that you've got available on your website. I was having a look. Um, I saw at least 25 uh, thematic growth ETFs. Uh, and obviously, that's just one segment of what, of what you do. Um, but I was interested to kind of understand from like a strategic or business level, how do you identify sort of new growth opportunities? Can you talk to us? about that process and whether there's any sort of interesting areas that you're looking at now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we were, uh, to give a little more background about Global X, you know, we were independent for the first 10 years of the business's history. And in 2018, we were acquired by Mirai Asset, which is a leading financial institution in Korea. One of the really exciting things since that acquisition is um, they've really helped us put the global in Global X, <laughs> which sounds a little bit silly, but um, they, uh, you know, being a major financial institution with a major presence in Asia, as well as across the emerging markets, you know, they really have encouraged us to continue to expand our reach around the globe. Um, so a lot of our growth strategies haven't been so much about, you know, trying to, you know, completely pivot the business's strategy or completely launch a different product line. It's really been taking what we do very well, thematic investing and alternative income and international access and bringing that to a much broader audience around the world. Um, just uh, a couple of months ago, we launched uh, GlobalX in Europe uh, in our first couple of products there. 
the previous year, we launched Global X Japan uh, in partnership with uh, Daiwa Securities. Um, we've also been cross-listing a lot of our ETFs in Mexico, um, giving better exposure to, uh, to uh, the Latin American market. So um, it's, it's really been kind of uh, expanding that access to a wider range of investors and making sure that we have the right products available to them in the right places. Yeah, completely. And I guess as, as I signposted at the beginning of the call, I want to focus on thematic investing, but it was interesting to sort of get a, a, a more broader, holistic view of what GlobalX are doing, uh, just to set the context uh, for this next sort of section of the discussion. And I'm, I guess I'm keen here uh, to understand the benefits of the thematic approach and why investors are increasingly adopting this approach. So in your opinion, to what extent do you think thematic investing caters to a world that is changing and will continue to change? perhaps beyond all recognition. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, broadly speaking, we, we think that people really manage portfolios based off of two principles. One principle is we try to learn from the past. And the second principle is we try to anticipate the future. It's actually pretty easy to learn from the past in financial services because we have so much data. You can tear through tons and tons of data points and in individual stocks. You can group them together by sector or by factors or by country and tear through all that data and try to find these patterns that have existed over decades and anticipate how those factors might repeat going forward. But at the same time, we realize that we're in a very dynamic, changing world right now, that entire industries are potentially being destroyed and new industries are rising because of things like major technological innovation that we're seeing or major changes in people and demographics and consumer habits or a changing relationship with the physical environment. So ultimately, we believe the best way for people to manage their portfolios is to really kind of take a little bit from both buckets, learn from the past and anticipate the future. Thematic investing is really all about that anticipating the future aspect of it. It's looking at a world that might be completely different from the one that we're coming into. And the benefit of doing so, if you can accurately identify those themes and get into them uh, early and be a long-term investor, is that uh, we believe that you're going to experience, you know, outsized growth relative to the broader economy. Uh, you know, why get exposure to, uh, you know, a broad benchmark who's that's going to own some disruptive companies, but a lot of older companies that are going to be the disrupted when you can just really focus on some of those disruptors that have uh, much more runway to grow over the next few decades. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what excites me about the approach is, I guess it's innately forward looking just in terms of how how you perceive markets. You're looking as you said there, at the disruptors rather than the disrupted, uh, which, which is a fascinating way to sort of approach markets and uh, equity investment uh, more broadly. And um, so in your opinion, compared to sort of smart beta or even sector level strategies, do you think it is superior in that sense? Could it, is it, or is that too general a word? Is it, would, would that be an unfair characterization? Well, I, w- I wouldn't say necessarily superior, but it's complementary. Um, you know, there's no reason that investors can't have a part of their portfolio that's looking to leverage, you know, smart beta or factor-based investing, which is, mm-hmm. you know, really based in academia and looking at historical data, as well as having some thematic investments that are forward-looking. Uh, there are different approaches, and diversifying the strategies within one's portfolio, I think, makes a ton of sense. What we've seen over the last decade um, in general is that thematic investing has done better than a lot of smart beta approaches. Uh, A lot of this is kind of being distilled down to growth over value. Thematic investing tends to be more growthy and smart beta tends to be more (laughs) value-y. Those are very broad generalizations, but um, it's generally kind of the direction they're heading. That doesn't necessarily mean that's going to repeat itself going forward, but We've certainly learned a lot over the last 10 years um, with respect to thematic investing. And we've also seen the progress a lot of, these, uh, of a lot of these themes. Frankly, just in the last year, um, we've seen that a lot of these themes have progressed in a way that we normally would have expected to see in five years or 10 years. You know, Just the rapid adoption of cloud computing as people have been working from home or the major shift away from brick and mortar stores to e-commerce. So it's been a very, um, a very kind of important year for thematic investing, not just in terms of being on the map for investors, but in terms of many of these themes really making the leap from kind of uh, earlier stage themes to becoming much more mass market. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm interested in the time horizon aspect of, of this approach as well. I mean, some of these trends are expected to sort of play out over certainly multi-year, but even multi-decade time horizons. Um, but if you're willing to sort of stick with it for, for that amount of time, I suppose you're there to benefit from any potential mispricing, given that valuations are traditionally made over shorter term business cycles. Is that a key sort of benefit of the thematic approach? 
That's exactly right. I mean, it's really trying to align patient investors with the opportunity for outsized growth and to give a little bit of a sense of that time horizon, because not every year is going to be like 2020, where you see this huge surge in a, in a lot of themes. They tend to happen slowly. Um, one of our oldest themes, actually our oldest, is our lithium and battery technology ETF. Uh, we launched it back in 2010, uh, so uh, almost 11 years ago now. And when we first launched it, it was really a way to play the rise in portable electronics. Um, we saw the growth of smartphones. We saw the growth of tablets and laptops. And the idea was, we don't know who's going to win. We, you know, at the time, you know, Nokia and BlackBerry were still very much in play, more so than just Apple and Samsung. But we knew that no matter who was the winner in these different categories, they would all utilize lithium-ion batteries. Fast forward 10 years later, the portable electronics space you know, continues to grow, but the biggest change in lithium battery demand is coming from electric vehicles. Uh, a Tesla uses about 5,000 times more lithium than a smartphone. So the theme has evolved a little bit. The driver of the theme has evolved. And still, uh, after those 11 years, the penetration of electric vehicles is only about 3%, meaning of, you know, of the 80 million or so cars sold each year, only about 3% of them are electric. So we still have a lot of runway until the lithium and battery technology theme has been kind of fully played out. A lot of expectations say that it's not going to be until 2035 that 50% of cars sold are electric. So there's another 15 years where uh, we're still very much going to be in kind of these early adoption stages. And that doesn't mean it necessarily ends at 2035. You could still see very strong growth and then it begins to taper in, in maybe 2040 or 2045. So that just gives a sense of when we're talking about long-term time horizon, we really are talking about decades when it relates to these themes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of questions uh, that I'll ask later on to do with uh, that specific product. I mean, it, it really has performed incredibly well over the last 12 months. So uh, we'll dig into that uh, in, in a few minutes or so. But to, to stick with the benefits of the thematic approach more broadly, um, uh, I've, I've been doing some reading around uh, the approach before the call. And as I say, it's something that we focus heavily on uh, on, on Opto as well. Um, and it, it's unconstrained, I suppose, would be a, to, to borrow sort of a more institutional term. Uh, and by that, I mean, particularly for uh, the kind of retail investors listening in, you know, you're not bound by a specific geography or sector or even asset class some of the time. So, I mean, I guess as a result of that, for the institutional space, you've got low correlation to other strategies, which is great. That's important for fund managers. But what, what do you think the benefits of that unconstrained approach are for the retail or individual investors? Well, the unconstrained approach is really designed to just get as good exposure to the theme as possible. Um, for the last couple of decades or so, the investment world has taken a very rigid uh, kind of grid-like view of the world that you have all the stocks in the world and you divide them by country and then you divide them by sector and then you divide them by industry and that all these different companies should fit, should fit super neatly in all of those boxes. And yet at the same time, you look at an Amazon and Amazon is selling overseas. So they're not just a US company. They're partly a consumer, you know, they sell Amazon basics, which is consumer staples. And yet they also sell, you know, complete nonsense that nobody needs, which was consumer discretionary. And they're also a, the biggest web services platform on the planet, which is information technology. So they don't really, they don't fit neatly in any of these boxes. So thematic investing basically says, we, we don't care about these boxes. We don't care about the traditional boxes of industry and sector and country. We want to find the companies that are best positioned to benefit from the emergence of a specific theme. So if we're looking at robotics and artificial intelligence, we have companies from Japan, we have companies from the US, from Europe. Some of them are classified as industrials because they're more in the manufacturing space. Some are classified as technology stocks because they're more in the artificial intelligence you know, chip making space. Some of them are even healthcare stocks um, because they're surgical robots that are doing hip and knee replacements. But at the end of the day, you know, we really don't care. We think it's a completely arbitrary classification. We classify those companies as robotics companies. So that unconstrained approach is really about uh, starting with the theme and trying to find the companies that are really positioned to benefit from that theme, regardless of how uh, you know, the, the financial grid might try to put them in a specific box. Yeah, that financial grid and that categorization uh, is is really interesting to me. I mean, sector labels like consumer discretionary, for example, at least seem to me, uh, from a personal point of view, sort of increasingly out of touch with with the modern economy and the way that works. 
how how fair a statement is that to you? I think it's exactly right. I mean, you see that, um, you know, we've actually seen a few of these sectors and industries change in just the last few years. Uh, You saw the real estate sector was broken out from the financial services industry because GICs, the global industry classification system, decided that the real estate sector was a real sector one day. And then a few years later, Mm -hmm. they broke out communication services, which borrowed from the old telecommunication services sector and and borrowed from the uh, information technology sector and created a new sector overnight. So it's, you know, this, um, you know, the sector system has not been, you know, handed down from the top of the mountain as, uh, as, you know, something that's, you know, really set in stone. (laughs) It's, it's a, it's a construct. And oftentimes it's a construct that's kind of more backwards looking than forwards looking, um, it's already looking at the economy that is and trying to create a sector system that puts companies in different buckets rather than anticipating the sectors of the future. Um, I think another way of thinking about thematic investing is it's anticipating new sectors and industries in the future. Mm, yeah, completely. So to what extent do you think there's a, there's a gap there, I suppose, for a new model of categorization to sort of overtake and supplant sector categorization? It's it certainly could could be done. I mean, we put together our own thematic classification system, which was because we looked around the world and realized that nobody was really doing a comprehensive job of identifying what is a theme, what's not a theme, and you know where certain funds fit into that uh, broader um, uh, into that broader system. It's not easy, uh, you mm-hmm. know. Whenever you're trying to put something, you know, we're we're going to be victim of our, of the thing I'm criticizing of putting something in a box where maybe it doesn't fit 100. Yeah. percent um, But uh, you know, I, I think there's just there's different lenses of looking at the financial world. You can look at it through a sector lens, you can look at it through a country lens, or you can look at it through a thematic lens. And I think increasingly investors are realizing the benefits of looking at things through a thematic lens. It's not necessarily the end all be all, but it's an important way of looking at the world. And we especially learned that in 2020 when we saw how looking at the world thematically um, was uh, was a very kind of important way of seeing how the capital markets were evolving compared to a sector-based approach. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, it's not a problem we're going to solve during this call, uh, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, sort of this approach and perspective of looking at markets from more of a 3D lens rather than a 2D one uh, and just sort of putting things into generic boxes as they have traditionally been um over over the past sort of few decades is is a really sort of interesting interesting conversation to have i think so fascinating to get your thoughts on that um well i'll move us on then to global x's product range um i want to focus specifically as i said on the thematic growth products within that wider range um i think as i mentioned earlier on yeah i counted 25 on your website um just before we move on to the specifics of that is is this a central sort of pillar or vertical for global x sort of moving forward yeah, absolutely. It's our uh, it's our biggest product suite by number of ETFs. It's our biggest product suite by you know total assets we manage, and we've uh, you know invested very heavily in it as a business. So it's uh, it's very core to who Global X is, along with our income suite and our international access suite. Yeah. Okay. Good. So I wanted first to give listeners a sense of the performance of these products. Um, I, I won't go into sort of the specific fund performance because uh, I know that's a compliance point so we don't need to get too sort of bogged down in that. I did personally see when I had a look before the call that the lithium and battery tech ETF um, was up over 129% over the past 12 months and that was just from a quick Google search. So that's, I mean, staggering out performance. But if you could give us sort of a more general stat or kind of a thought on your thematic growth products performance over the past sort of 12 months or recent times is there anything that you can give us to sort of give the listeners a better idea of how well these products are performing at the moment well they they, they did perform very well uh over the last 12 months and 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 throughout 2020 um there's certainly a range within themes i mean themes can be accessing very different companies so lithium and battery technology was our best performing theme over the last 12 months as we saw, you know, a huge uptick in the adoption of electric vehicles and greater optimism around uh, the commitments that major companies were were making towards uh, adopting electric vehicles. Um, but we have also, you know, very different themes that, are di- that were driven by very different drivers. Uh, we have a cannabis ETF and a clean tech ETF, both of which really benefited from uh, the Biden election and, uh, and the runoff elections in Georgia that ensured Democrats would control the Senate. Um, we had certain themes that benefited more from the stay-at-home economy, like cloud computing and e-commerce and video games and esports. 
We've had themes that have benefited from the reopening economy, the development of vaccines and widespread testing like genomics, uh, as well as uh, advancements in, in healthcare like telemedicine and digital health. So really a lot of things went well over the last 12 months that propelled a variety of different themes, um, but still you know, a very wide range of performance. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah. And yeah, as I say, we, we won't get sort of too bogged down in the uh, performance of specific funds, but uh, I think it's really important to give our listeners just a sense of how well these are doing. And, you know, they can go look up these products in their own time. And to get into the uh, construction of some of these ETFs, uh, how do you ascertain the, the respective weightings of individual stocks within these thematic growth products? I got the sense it's, you know, it's more nuanced than maybe a market cap or equal weighting. So, so what goes into the methodology there? So when you're creating, I guess just to take a step back into you know the construction of a of a thematic ETF, mm. there's no S and P 500 of robotics. Um, so you you have to go out and, and create that index. Um, a lot of the work that that we're doing at Global X is working with an index provider on the creation of this custom index. Yeah, this can take you know six months, nine months of development to develop this index because. You know, it sounds easy to say, okay, yeah, go buy all the robotics companies in the world, but the the actual execution of that is much more challenging. What is robotics? Uh, there's a lot of subsegments that feed into robotics that you have to kind of mutually agree upon, whether that's industrial automation, non-industrial robots, uh, um, uh, autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence companies. So you really have to scope out what those individual segments are. And then you have to do a lot of work into ensuring that you're finding those companies, that you're providing a comprehensive exposure to the robotics and artificial companies, uh, artificial intelligence companies that are out there. And then the next step is weighting them. So if you have that list, that comprehensive list of companies, you know how, how much weight do you ascribe to each company? What we do at Global X on the weighting scheme side is we tend to lean on market cap weighted, but with uh, certain caps and floors. Um, right. So what this is effectively doing is we're providing more exposure to the bigger companies. And this is by design. Um, in a lot of the themes, um, we have seen in the past that they tend to be winner-take-all or winner-take-most markets. Uh, going back to the smartphone example, Apple and Samsung dominate. Everyone else is a distant, uh, uh, you know, distant behind mm-hmm. them. Uh, if you look at search engines, it's Google and everyone else is far behind. If you look at social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and and um, and you know maybe you include Snap in there, but it's a it's a very long tail after that. So a lot of these disruptive um, themes have really been dominated by a few names. We want to create indexes so that it reflects that that we get more exposure to those major powerhouses that tend to enjoy most of the economic benefits of winning that theme. Um, at the same time, however, uh, we, we don't want the index to just be completely dominated by one or two names. We do want a level of diversification uh, for risk mitigation and, uh, and um, um, yeah, uh, you know, to ensure liquidity across the portfolio as yeah. well. So we'll put a cap on the individual position size. Um, in, a, in an ETF like robotics, we put a cap at 7%. Other themes, we might put a lower cap or a higher cap, depending on uh, kind of the market dynamics within each theme. Um, but the idea here is get a lot of exposure to those winners. Um, also cut exposure to losers as they, as they, you know, are struggling in the theme. Um, but try to ensure some level of diversification with, uh, the, uh, institution of these caps. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you, you rightly took a step back there to consider sort of finding the companies in the first place that relate to these quite specific or niche themes. And that just sort of sparked my my interest there. I, I wondered how you do specifically find these companies. You know, how do you screen for relevant companies? Is it quite a manual process or automated? Is there AI involved? Like, how, how does that play out? Um, it's a it's an in depth process for sure. I mean, when you're talking about thematic investing, your opportunity set is you know tens of thousands of companies listed around the world, and you're you know ultimately going to narrow that down to the thirty, the forty, the fifty names that are really you know well positioned for a specific theme. So you have to narrow it down from tens of thousands to a more manageable list before you can really dig into the details. One of the approaches we use in some of our indexes uh, is a natural language processing approach, uh, NLP. 
Um, effectively, it's kind of a glorified Google search where you identify various keywords related to a theme. And those keywords are searched within various regulatory documents, websites, filings, uh, you know, corporate, um, you know, corporate documents, et cetera. And it's trying to count the frequency that those keywords show up. And the idea being the more often they show up, the more likely that company is involved in that activity. So if your keyword is robotics, the idea is that if robotics shows up a lot, it's a likely candidate for a robotics company. I'm emphasizing likely because at the end of the day, I don't think you can just rely on natural language processing. Um, it's a way to narrow down the opportunity set but ultimately, it takes a higher level of due diligence to actually then look into those companies that are potential robotics companies and ensure that they actually are deriving the majority of their revenue from the robotics space or have the majority of their assets in, in robotics activities. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the, one of the processes that, uh, that we put in place um, to identify those companies. Um, it's kind of that hybrid uh, artificial intelligence and, and kind of more manual approach to get to uh, what we believe is uh, you know, a very well-specified list of companies. Yeah, sure. And I guess once you've got that list of companies that you're, that you're happy with and that will ultimately figure in the index, how do you kind of ensure that the exposure and correlation to a specific theme, a chosen theme is maintained, that must be quite a job making sure that that correlation and exposure still exists sort of five, 10 years down the line. Right. So um, there's a rebalance and reconstitution process that's built into the index methodologies. A lot of our themes uh, reconstitute on a semi-annual basis. So about twice a year, um, the basically every company has to be defended in the index. It has to be re-examined uh, to make sure it still makes sense to be included in that theme and that any new company that has IPO'd or spun out or changed its business plans dramatically uh, is considered for inclusion if it makes sense. So, you know, different years, you're going to see different, you know, different trends. Um, you know, some years you might see, you know, a handful of IPOs and a new theme. Other years, you know, you might not see a ton of new companies coming in. Uh, but overall, um, it's it's certainly a, a dynamic index and changes over time as you know the companies uh, involved in the theme change as well. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So um, I wanted to focus on uh, one of your more recent. I won't say the most recent, but one of your more recent products, which uh, is the Global X Clean Tech ETF. It, it just struck me as interesting because there's a lot of products that focus on clean energy and clean tech more broadly, uh, and I just wondered how kind of you felt that this product was differentiated to the other clean tech ETFs out there. Right. So clean tech has really been uh, very popular over the last few months. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, the Biden administration has made it very clear that they're going to be focused on uh, re-entering the Paris agreement, um, trying to achieve uh, carbon neutrality for the United States by 2050. Uh, we've seen a lot of other countries, you know, make similar commitments um, uh, in Europe and in Asia. And really the main way to get there is going to be through clean tech. It is the technology that's going to bridge that gap from where we are today to those very ambitious climate goals. Um, one of the ways that our product is very different is we separate clean tech from clean energy. And it's a yeah. little bit of a nuance, but if you are a company that is leading in the research and development of uh, photovoltaic cells, PV cells or solar panels, um, we believe you're a clean tech company. Uh, you are developing clean technology. If you're a company that buys solar panels and puts them in a giant solar farm uh, in the middle of Arizona desert and sells electricity, you're a renewable energy producer. Uh, very different risk and return profiles of those two different companies. Clean tech is going to be driven by R and D. It's going to be, you know, driven by the industry dynamics of what it costs to create a, a PV cell, um, how what they're selling it for, demand for PV cells. Um, whereas a renewable energy producer, uh, which is a different theme of ours, is mostly going to be driven by what the cost of electricity is and how much they can sell it for, uh, and it's probably going to be less volatile of a return stream. Um, uh, over time. So the key difference in our funds uh, in the clean tech and the renewable energy producer space is really differentiating between these two sides of the market. One that's definitely more upstream and one that's definitely a little bit more downstream within that kind of clean economy. Yeah, yeah, completely understood. That's such an important distinction. Um, okay. And I, I wonder just for people that are, will obviously be new to the product, a lot of the listeners won't have even heard of the ETF uh, going into going into this interview. So uh, are there any sort of specific companies within that ETF that jump out to you as particularly sort of innovative or interesting? 
Well, I'll talk a little bit more broadly about some of the kind of sub themes in that category that we that we're really interested mm, in. I mean, one sure. of, one of them is hydrogen. Um, so hydrogen and fuel cells are a really interesting space right now. We've you know we've obviously seen electric vehicles you know become more and more on the map with uh, with the growth of Tesla. Um, but when you're looking at other types of transportation, uh, we think hydrogen actually makes a lot more sense than electric uh, than electric or batteries. If, for example, in trucking, um, you know, trucking is very dependent on the weight of the truck. Uh, you know, trucks pay a toll based off of how much you know weight they're carrying. A lot of roads have limits on how much weight they're carrying. But to power a truck that can drive 400 or 500 miles, you literally need tons of batteries. Um, however, if you have a hydrogen drive system or a fuel cell drive system, you're filling up that truck with hydrogen, uh, which uh, in the grand scheme of things is actually lightening the truck. Actually, it's, it's not quite lightening the truck, but it, it weighs effectively nothing um, compared to the tons and tons of batteries you'd be loading up with an electric truck. So it's just one example of where we think hydrogen actually has advantages over batteries. There's other areas in, in kind of that heavy transportation, uh, shipping, trains, um, where we think hydrogen also makes a lot of sense. So it's still very early in the hydrogen space. Um, however, the companies leading in, uh, you know, the fuel cell, you know, electrolyzer development, we think are going to be very interesting as we continue to see this transition to new forms of transportation going forward. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's a really sort of compelling trend and one that we're seeing a lot more take up on uh, at the moment. Um, I wondered whether you could give us um, a favorite, it's probably the wrong word, but if you could pick from the existing product range an interesting theme one i guess that you see a lot growth potential in uh one that excites you at the moment is there one that stands out or one that you're sort of willing to discuss now well the one that i think is really well positioned for the next decade is genomics um so genomics is really the study mm -hmm. of, of genes um it started with genomic sequencing the fact that you could for a couple hundred bucks uh you know get your 23andme test and tells you if you like cilantro or not at a genetic level or whether your kids might have blue eyes or brown <laughs> eyes and all those you know fun little features that are actually encoded in your dna but that information is actually a lot more valuable than than just that um when you uh when you start collecting tons and tons of genetic data you can start to aggregate that and you can start to learn more at a very personalized level about individuals so what is, you know, how does that impact, you know, healthcare and, and, you know, kind of the next decade? Well, if you think about the past, you know, doctors would ask really broad questions about yourself, male, female, uh, what's your age? Um, are you a smoker? Uh, what, you know, what, what's your ethnicity? What's your nationality? They'd use these really broad markers and make some inferences about, you know, what drug you would be the best candidate for. But that's really not that targeted to know that you're a, you know, a male in your 30s and so you should be using one drug versus another. What if you can get the information at a genetic level that really dives into the details about the composition of your body and how you might react to different drugs? That's just scratching the surface of how genetic sequencing can be so powerful in, the, in medicine. Beyond that, I think what's really fascinating is the use of, of gene therapies and gene editing, where if you effectively see a gene in someone's body that you don't like. And what I mean by don't like is it causes a very debilitating disease like um, like sickle cell disease or, or something along those lines that you can just go in and actually edit that individual gene and remove that disease from the body, not by treating it to suppress it, but to actually literally remove the gene that's causing that disease. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And then what we're seeing um, on the on the treatment side um, with uh, with COVID nineteen and the vaccine development, uh, somewhat kind of it's hard to say under the radar because there's so much attention on on uh, on COVID nineteen these days. But I just don't think it's fully gotten appreciated. Yeah. Is that we effectively created an entirely new asset class of vaccines um, with the introduction of mRNA based vaccines. So Moderna, um, you know, famously has created, you know, an mRNA-based vaccine. Rather than injecting, you know, a weakened or dead version of the COVID-19 virus, it's injecting uh, mRNA information into your cells to create the spike protein um, from COVID-19, which it will cause an antibody response in your body to fight off that spike uh, protein and now can recognize it going forward and, and, uh, and you know, hopefully, and, and what the studies are showing is very successfully prevent COVID-19 infections. Now, prior to this pandemic, mRNA or Moderna had been working on this technology for years, um, but they didn't have as much money to go about it because you didn't have 
operation warp speed and ton and billions of dollars being channeled into mRNA research. And then you also had regulators who were kind of hesitant to approve this new technology um, because they're they're regulators and they're pretty risk adverse. They don't want to approve anything that they don't that they don't really need to approve or that there isn't completely overwhelming evidence to do so. So because of the pandemic, you had more money going into mRNA research. You had more regulatory um, momentum behind it to approve this technology. And now it's there. Now we have it. And now you can use mRNA technology, not just for COVID-19, but to potentially unlock all these different vaccines for the common flu, for multiple sclerosis, for all these, you know, for many different uh, viruses and diseases. HIV is also another one that's, you know, potentially um, going to be tackled by mRNA-based vaccines. So we, I think, are really going to enter into a golden age because of the advancements we've made in genomic sequencing, gene editing, and gene therapies. Yeah, I completely agree. And having a product that gives you exposure to that sort of R&D, that, inf- uh, that innovation like uh, that is available in the Global X uh, kind of suite, uh, that genome and biotechnology ETF, um, is, is a really fascinating way to sort of approach that, that trend that's actually uh, sort of pervading everyone's lives at the moment with COVID-19 sort of being uh, inescapable. I guess I then wanted to just finish uh, the main body of the interview by asking whether there's any themes or maybe it's a sub-theme you're kind of monitoring at the moment. Uh, maybe you're thinking about building a product there, but it hasn't quite met your kind of stringent threshold or criteria to to be submitted for product development. Is there any themes that sort of spring to mind? Yeah, sir. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we have we have 70 themes in our thematic universe, but 25 thematic ETFs. So, you know, roughly a third of them haven't quite, quite um, you know, cut it for our for our high bar. That doesn't mean they're never going to cut it. Uh, you know, a lot of them maybe aren't investable yet. So the the growth of SPACs, which has really increased the IPO pipeline for a lot of innovative companies, could rapidly bring a lot of new themes to the table very quickly. Um, you know, a couple that, you know, just they're on our radar. We just haven't really felt comfortable bringing them out in products yet. Uh, one is blockchain. Um, you know, not surprising. Yeah. We've been talking about blockchain for years. We just find that investability is a challenge right now. The number of pure play companies involved in blockchain is pretty limited, um, but it's obviously an area we have our eye on and, um, and you know, the broader capital markets very much have their eye on. Um, another one we're interested in is uh, augmented and virtual reality. Um, it's a theme that has kind of had its fits and starts, um, you know, a few years ago with the introduction introduction of Oculus Rift and, uh, you know, some other um, uh, virtual reality headsets made a lot of noise. There was some adoption, but then adoption actually reversed and went, uh, and you saw, uh, you know, growth rates really decline over a couple of years. That made us really kind of challenge the conviction behind augmented and virtual reality. We're just, we're not really sure the technology is there yet for mass adoption, but it's an area that we certainly have our eye on because it's, it has a lot of potential. There's certainly a lot of use cases for augmented and virtual reality. And if it's true that Apple is really working on a headset, you know, that could be certainly a major, um, uh, a major catalyst for the growth of that theme going forward. Yeah, certainly. Okay. So one to watch. Um, well, that's a, that's a nice place to finish the main body of the interview then. So our, our final uh, sort of segment, I don't expect it to save more than two minutes. This is a list of five questions that we submit to all of our guests. Um, and it's it's our quick fire question round. So just a lighthearted way to end the episode and you know, feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. Uh, so the first question, what is the top mistake investors make? I think the top mistake investors make is is being too short term. Uh, I think a lot of people think that they can outsmart the markets, uh, that they can take quick wins, and that that can compound over time. The reality is, the markets are you know tend to be very efficient. They tend to be uh, very challenging to compete in. But even the most sophisticated institutional investors challenge to compete in the short time frame. So I think the biggest mistake people make is is being too focused on the day to day and instead of looking out at the long term. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Okay, so question two then. Where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers? Yeah, you know, we we read the major ones, of course, the Financial Times, Bloomberg, uh, The Economist. But, you know, what I really love on the thematic side is some of these more specialized publishers um, that just don't get as much attention. Um, You know, I love the guys at Benchmark Minerals. Uh, They do a lot of great research on lithium, the robot report. Uh, the guys at uh, CTA put out a lot of great studies on uh, consumer electronics. 
So, you know, we like digging into some of the more kind of uh, industry specific publications beyond uh, the major ones. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, I'll definitely check out a few of those. So question three, what is the most memorable moment from your career to date? Well, one that sticks out to me, I mentioned earlier in the interview, you know, putting the global and global X, um, you know, we were in Bangkok meeting with a few investors and Bangkok is known for having historically bad traffic. Uh, and so we were running late to a meeting. I'm in my suit. It's a hundred degrees out. My boss is in his suit. Uh, and the, we realized, or someone with us realized that the only way we were going to make it to our meeting in time was to hire, you know, a tuk-tuk to take us there, basically a motorcycle with a kind of a covered mm-hmm. A rickshaw in the back, um, and just drive, you know, weaving in and out of Bangkok traffic in 100 degree weather. I had kind of an out of body experience of, you know, wow, we uh, we've we've come a long way as a firm, and uh, and truly have, you know, you know, entered the global stage here. Yeah, completely. Uh, okay, penultimate question: a top tip for your younger self. Um, I would encourage any, you know, young financial professionals to, um, you know, to, it sounds simple, but to, to say yes to any opportunity that, that comes to them. Um, I think, you know, people sometimes are worried about whether they, you know, have the tools or have the knowledge to be able to take on a new challenge in work or outside of work. And the reality is when you say yes to something, you know, you're, you're, you're betting on yourself that you're going to be able to figure it out and, and develop that expertise. Nobody's an expert in anything until they take that initial step. So say yes to opportunities, uh, and 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 figure it out, and uh, and you'll be uh, very well rewarded over the course of your career. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so our final question, and this is sort of the opto question. We sort of endeavour, I suppose, to speak to the firms, the individuals outperforming sort of standard or typical benchmark returns. So the final question is: What is an investor's best source of alpha, in your opinion? Well, similar to your first question in the in the quick round, the greatest source of alpha is having a long-term time horizon. Now, that's not technically the definition of alpha, <laughs> but you are much better off sticking in something for the long run and uh, you know watching that compounding growth over many, many years. So if you really want to think about alpha, develop patience, treat your body well so that you can have a long and healthy life and compound those returns, not over five years or 10 years, but over 20, 30, 40, 50 years that's going to be an incredible source of returns. Yeah, completely. Okay, great. Well, I, that, that was fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Jay. It's been a real pleasure. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.